The first thing I need to do this episode is give a huge shout out to the folks over at the Philosophy Sub on Reddit, who have been really great in giving feedback and information for future shows, or just general encouragement. This show is, I hope, going to be philosophically heavy enough to seat even the most voracious student of philosophy, and hopefully future episodes will be even more informative and thought-provoking, while also being entertaining, I hope. Usually, when I tell people I'm working on a podcast that discusses the paranormal, or even just talk about how interesting I think the subject is, people react in one of two ways. Either the other person will immediately blurt out that they too share this fascination with the unknown, or the person will scoff and say that paranormal beliefs are complete crap. I don't get the second one all that often, especially considering I'm usually grabbing drinks with other graduate students who are also trying to drown out their thesis-related sorrows. I think this is probably because graduate students don't think anything is impossible after seeing their experiments fail for unknowable and mystical reasons, or maybe because their advisors can oftentimes seem to be possessed by demons. But maybe it's also because they've spent an awful lot of time dedicated to their science, and so have had to try and fit all their worldviews with this career and life path that we've chosen. Or maybe I just hang out with weirdos. Regardless, I think the underlying idea of the paranormal or fringe ideas being something to scoff at comes from a self-assuredness at the power of rational science. However, if we are going to be so sure that science is the true way of knowing about the nature of our existence, and that the paranormal are those things that can simply not fit within that definition of existence, then it seems like people are pretty sure about what exactly science is. The view of science as a never-changing, constant monolith gives us scientists way too much credit. The definitions of science, the methods by which we do good versus bad science, and how science relates to the world are forever changing things, altered by the politics, society, and economic systems in which a given scientist is found. Besides that, what constitutes good science or how science should be performed is not something agreed upon even in the scientific literature. And if we are going to say that something is not science then we need a good definition of science so that we can figure out what sorts of things to rule out. In tonight's episode, we will go over what science, and therefore nature, is, and in this way hopefully come to understand what pseudoscience, or the paranormal, or unnatural, must be. Welcome to the Mad Scientist Podcast! Episode 3! Doesn't have a name! That's exciting! I always find it fascinating that the people with the highest opinion of scientists are those that usually haven't worked with very many of them. That's not to say that the scientists I know aren't phenomenal, extremely intelligent people, but they are just that, people. From personal experience, I can at least state that science is not nearly as cut and dry a thing as people tend to believe. There are many fields where new graduate students are given a paper to read once they join a lab and then immediately told by their advisors or other graduate students that the paper they just read, although fundamental reading in their field, is deeply flawed or currently no longer believed for a variety of reasons, and so can no longer be trusted. Furthermore, scientists may cut corners or fudge data or fit things to correspond to a given political or social climate. Famously, the Soviets for many years taught that acquired traits could be passed along through genetics. Thanks to the work of the Soviet scientist Trofim Lysenko. The Soviets rejected the basic tenets of genetics as they currently stand, instead following the idea of Lamarckian inheritance. 
The basic premise of Lamarckian inheritance was that the traits of an organism acquired during the lifetime of the organism would be passed down to the offspring. A really broad example of this is that, for instance, if you were to chop the tail off of a dog, its offspring would be born without a tail, and would never grow one. In other words, by doing something to the physical body of the organism during its lifetime, you're changing its genetics, and therefore, it will pass along that trait to its offspring or children or whatever. The reasoning behind this shift was political, of course, with the Soviets using Lysenko as an agricultural genius who showed that the Soviets could win the economic race with the United States. Biologists trained during the Soviet Revolution were killed and imprisoned, and those taught in the Soviet biological sciences learned and had to accept this work that was very clearly incorrect. And even in the United States today, science can be an extremely political and economically driven process. My own field of carbon dioxide capture and conversion is one such politically and economically fraught discipline. In many ways, the realities of science are therefore much more human and less robotic than people tend to believe. Okay, so clearly science can be economically or politically driven, but shouldn't science be used to tell us how to act in the world? Isn't the point of knowing about nature, knowing what we should be doing in our lives? Well, just because something may be seemingly naturally occurring does not imply a moral judgment about the thing. Scientific facts should not be used to make normative or moral judgments about the world. And we see this used throughout history for some pretty horrible things. This is the famous naturalist fallacy, known as the is-ought problem, or David Hume's guillotine. Just because something is a certain way does not imply that it ought to be that way. For instance, while it is the case that humans primarily eat meat, there is no moral reason to suppose that humans should or ought to eat meat. Instead, there must be an ethical principle on which to base this judgment. Just because women have historically been subservient to men does not mean that they ought to be. Because slavery has always seemed to exist does not mean that it ought to exist. This is oftentimes mixed up with another similar fallacy, which states that just because something appears natural does not mean that it is actually natural or necessary in any sort of special way, or that there must be a scientific explanation for something that appears to be the natural order. This is another argument that was used at the time to support slavery, where it was suggested that Darwinian evolution could provide a means of showing that those races that were traditionally slaves actually had some biological difference that made them more easily enslaved or suited for slavery-type work. Again, this argument was also used to explain the domestic situations of women as well, with arguments that they had smaller brain capacity, became more emotionally excited during mental labor, or could not physically do as much as men, and so should not be allowed to do jobs that were traditionally given to the male sex. For slavery, we see the quotes of Samuel A. Cartwright, who used science to try and support slavery. He said, quote, If the white man attempts to oppose the deity's will by trying to make the Negro anything else than the submissive knee-bender, which the Almighty declared he should be, by trying to raise him to a level with himself, or by putting himself on an equality with the Negro, or if he abuses the power which God has given him over his fellow man by being cruel to him or punishing him in anger, 
or by neglecting to protect him from the wanton abuses of his fellow servants and all others, or by denying him the usual comforts and necessaries of life, the Negro will run away. But if he keeps him in the position that we learn from the scriptures he was intended to occupy, that is, the position of submission, and if his master or overseer be kind and gracious in his hearing towards him, without condescension, and at the same time ministers to his physical wants, and protects him from abuses, the Negro is spellbound and cannot run away. I mean, I feel like a dick just reading that quote. Not only is he using it that, oh, it's natural for whites to act over other races, but he's also saying here that, well, so long as you treat your slaves well, they shouldn't want to run away, right? In fact, his argument mainly was that slaves running away to freedom was an act of mental illness. Similarly, we see quotes related to the supposed size of the female brain, and therefore naturalness of their lower status compared to men. Paul Broca was one such writer and scientist, whose work was so influential that it set the stage for future work against women's suffrage and equality. And in fact, some of the facts he propagated continue to be used today to justify misogynistic attitude. His work primarily measured the size of the cranial cavity between men and women, in a field known as anthropometry, or measuring the human body. He stated, quote, We might ask if the small size of the female brain depends exclusively upon the small size of her body. Tiedemann, who was another scientist at the time, has proposed this explanation. But we must not forget that women are, on the average, a little less intelligent than men, a difference which we should not exaggerate, but which is nonetheless real. We are therefore permitted to suppose that the relatively small size of the female brain depends in part upon her physical inferiority and in part upon her intellectual inferiority, end quote. I mean, again, an absolutely insane thing to argue. In both of these cases, historical wrongs were committed because science was fit to match a narrative of what ought to be, or was used to further enforce how things were. As Stephen Jay Gould writes in Women's Brains, trying to explain the reason that Broca's work stuck around so long, he says, quote, Broca's work seemed particularly invulnerable to refutation. Had he not measured with the most scrupulous care and accuracy? Indeed, he had. I have the greatest respect for Broca's meticulous procedure. His numbers are sound. But science is an inferential exercise, not a catalog of facts. Numbers, by themselves, specify nothing. All depends upon what you do with them, end quote. And we see this theme continue even today. Data or numerical trends cannot be used to discuss what is natural or the correct way, or how things ought to be. Because the analysis of this data is always going to be influenced by the thinking and opinions of the person doing the analysis. Examples like this are one of the many reasons where, as a practicing scientist, I attempt to steel myself against confirmation bias or fallacies that support the status quo of the day. And I also try to make it clear to the people around me that science and scientists are not infallible. While science can tell us about the natural world, the fact that the natural world is a certain way does not mean that it should be that way, 
or that moral or social rules should be inferred from scientific observations. However, notice that this idea that moral rules should be separate from scientific rules only works if you suppose that there is something like free will, which is completely separate from the deterministic mechanisms of a materialist view of the brain as consciousness. In other words, if the soul is simply due to the action of the atoms that compose the brain, then aren't all of our actions predetermined from our birth? With a strong enough computer and a deep enough understanding of the way thoughts can be reduced to brain states, which can be reduced to the actions of the cells of the brain, which can then be reduced to the interaction of subatomic particles, could we not from birth determine exactly what an organism would do in every situation? If that's true, then what do we do with criminals? Can a criminal really be culpable for their actions if they are simply acting in a way that's mechanistic or predetermined? This is one argument that is often invoked by some sociologists today, based on the determinism of Karl Marx, where economic situations determine what the most likely way a person will behave are. In this view, crime is an economic problem more than a moral one with lower economic classes being predisposed to crime because of the situations in which they live. But it is something that many scientific determinists do not seem to take seriously when arguing against things such as the soul or mind. To believe that we are just the firing of neurons that can be determined by physics requires that we take vastly different views on things like crime or those who have wronged us in the past, in a way that I am not sure many people would be comfortable with. We've talked a lot about how science has failed in the past, and how nature is often used to make moral claims. I hope that I've convinced many of my listeners that science cannot be used to make moral judgments, and furthermore, to look for the reasoning behind a prescriptive thing given through science to try and figure out if that statement makes sense to you before actually doing it. Science may come to understand what is nature, but it cannot tell us what ought to be, or what the natural state of affairs for human beings should be, or what is moral or immoral. But we still haven't discussed what makes a theory scientific to begin with. One of the greatest differences between scientific and magical thinking is that science is made to be proven wrong, whereas magical thinking is dogmatic. Whereas good science is thought to be changing and adaptive to new information and theories, magic is set in its ways and requires absolute faith to believe. In fact, this is one of the major ways that philosophers of science have attempted to distinguish between what is and is not real science. Karl Popper came up with this notion, that for something to be considered a real scientific theory or thought, it must be falsifiable. In other words, it must be possible to test the truth of a scientific statement against the truth of the natural world. In this way, science always corresponds to nature and with each successive set of false experiments becomes refined to better describe the natural order of things. In this worldview, scientific laws or theories are not set in stone, instead only being considered true until such time that they can be proven false in some way and refined further. Popper says in Conjectures and Refutations, published in 1963, quote, I knew, of course, the most widely accepted answer to my problem, that science is distinguished from pseudoscience, or from metaphysics, by its empirical method, which is essentially inductive, proceeding from observation or experiment. But this did not satisfy me. On the contrary, 
I often formulated my problem as one of distinguishing between a genuinely empirical method and a non-empirical or even pseudo-empirical method. That is to say, a method which, although it appeals to observation and experiment, nevertheless does not come up to scientific standards. The latter method may be exemplified by astrology, with its stupendous mass of empirical evidence based on observation, on horoscopes and biographies. These considerations led me, in the winter of 1919 to 1920, to conclusions which I now reformulate as follows. So what I'm going to do here is I'm going to read his postulates, his seven kind of statements that he came up with here to explain his theory. I am going to give a brief summary of what they mean and then try to give an example that makes sense. So, one, it is easy to obtain confirmations or verifications for nearly every theory if we look for confirmations. What that means is that if you're setting out to try to confirm a theory, you will probably find evidence that can confirm it, right? A good example of this is one that he gives, astrology. Now, my mom loves astrology. Ever since I was a kid, she always did my star charts and stuff. And like, man, when I, when I met my girlfriend or my now fiance, she did her star chart and everything to see if we were compatible. Like, my mom is into it, right? And I always say to her that a lot of the things, like a lot of, okay, this planet is in this house and it's got this moon or whatever, are like not only vague, but extremely wide reaching, right? So for instance, you know, let's say, I mean, I don't know if this is actually a real one, but let's say Pluto in cancer or whatever, that can mean, that can mean that you're going to be good at public speaking or you'll have a fear of something specific, or you will be good at working with a big group of people, or you will be a natural leader or whatever. That can pretty much fit to any one of us, right? Either we're good at public speaking or we're afraid of public speaking, or we are maybe not doing public speaking like a comedian or an actor, but well, maybe you work on a team with people and so you have to lead them or you just like to bring up your own thoughts. It's not hard to find confirmations for this idea. Two, confirmations should count only if they're the result of risky predictions. And he goes on to clarify. That is to say, confirmation should count only if, unenlightened by the theory in question, we should have expected an event which was incompatible with the theory. What this means is that you can only take a confirmation to be the result of a refutation of the previous theory. And this occurs because we see an observation that we wouldn't have expected in the previous case. So let's take, for instance, a very simple example. Let's say that I think that if I leave an apple in my fridge for 10 days, it'll turn into a peach, right? That is my theory, and it's not a very good one, probably. If I go into my fridge after 10 days of leaving my apple there, and in fact, it comes out as a peach, then that confirmation counts. Because using the previous theory of nature, we would have expected my apple to stay an apple. This one is especially good for quantum mechanics, too. The famous example of photons being both a particle and a wave 
really fits this bill very nicely. Imagine you have a baseball pitching robot that's going to shoot baseballs at a wall. And you have these balls painted in such a way that when they strike the surface of the wall, they'll leave behind a splotch where they hit. If we look at the machine shooting at the wall, we'll see exactly what we expect, which is a big splotch where the balls are hitting the wall, right? The balls are acting as balls or particles. If, however, we turn away from the machine for a bit of time and then turn back around, what we see is that the balls haven't hit just the center, but seem to have made almost like a target ring around that center point. That target ring corresponds to the balls hitting the surface and then kind of rippling across the surface as a wave. So you can think that if we were to draw like a wave pattern with a pencil, the distance between peaks on that wave pattern would be those lines on the wall that we see. That's exactly what happens with photons being shot at a photographic film. If we observe them, we see a dot. If we don't observe them, we see a wave pattern. In this way, photons are a wave particle. They're two things at once. Three, every good scientific theory is a prohibition. It forbids certain things to happen. The more a theory forbids, the better it is. In other words, good science is really there to tell us what nature is possible of doing. What can or cannot occur. If a theory is good, then it will forbid more things. 4. A theory which is not refutable by any conceivable event is non-scientific. Irrefutability is not a virtue of a theory, as people often think, but a vice. This one is probably one of my favorite ones. It really can... Basically what he's saying here is that if your theory can't be refuted by any scientific test, then it's not really scientific. It's metaphysical or something else. A good example of this is the idea that we are objects in the matrix, right? Or a more traditional version of this same argument, Rene Descartes' demon. In both scenarios, the idea is that all of our sensory perceptions are the result of trickery. So in the case of the matrix, it's due to a robot or something feeding information to our brain somewhere. Whereas in the case of Descartes, it was a demon who was tricking our brains into seeing or feeling or observing nature in a way. In both cases, they do nothing to change science. They don't change anything about how we understand nature currently. But they're also not refutable in any way, right? If they're true, it doesn't really change anything for us. Because life as we know it will just continue that way anyways. So, those theories are not scientific. 5. Every genuine test of a theory is an attempt to falsify or refute it. Testability is falsifiability, but there are degrees of testability. Some theories are more testable, more exposed to refutation than others. They take, as it were, greater risks. Basically what he's saying here is that every real test of a theory is an attempt to show that that theory is not true. So when we're testing general relativity, we're not setting out to prove Einstein correct. 
we're setting up experiments in such a way that we can show that his theories are incorrect. And in many ways, theories can be more falsifiable than others. In other words, if we go back to my apple peach example, if I say that an apple in my fridge will turn into a peach over a day of being in the cold, if that's wrong, it only changes a little bit of nature. It only changes my idea of the transformation of fruit spontaneously. If, however, quantum mechanics is wrong, it changes everything almost, right? It changes a lot of nature for us. So that theory is a much broader, much more falsifiable theory. Six, confirming evidence should not count except when it is the result of a genuine test of the theory. And this means that it can be presented as a serious but unsuccessful attempt to falsify the theory. Again, he's stating that confirming evidence only counts if it's been unsuccessfully used to try to falsify a theory. So how can we confirm quantum mechanics is true? We can fail at showing that it's wrong. In a world infatuated with comic fandom comes a show to help us remember the talents that have inspired us. Whoa, 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 cut. Oh, come on. It wasn't that bad. It's a bit dramatic. Let's just tell them about the show, guys. We are the Canned Air Podcast. Join us weekly for a comedic trip through pop culture. We also welcome some cool comic creators, as well as some of the voice and screen actors that help shape your childhood. Find us on cannedairpodcast.com and on the Evergreen Podcast Network. Seven, some genuinely testable theories, when found to be false, are still upheld by their admirers. For example, by introducing ad hoc some auxiliary assumption, or by reinterpreting the theory ad hoc in such a way that it escapes refutation. Such a procedure is always possible, but it rescues the theory from refutation only at the price of destroying, or at least lowering, its scientific status. One can sum up all this by saying that the criterion of the scientific status of a theory is its falsifiability, or refutability, or testability. Now what he's saying in 7 is that if your theory is proven wrong, instead of acquiescing to the fact of its incorrectness, sometimes, again, because science is a political or economic thing done by real people, the individual scientist will still cling to their old beliefs. And in so doing, they may try to introduce arguments or assumptions or other things that make it fit the current view of science, but do so in such a way that they kind of take away from the scientific quality of the theory in question. Popper's view is really closest to the one that I find justifiable as well. That science is primarily a way to refute facts as opposed to putting them forward. Good science shows why something works, but can only get to that point by removing other competing theories around it. Does the paranormal fit Popper's view of science? Are paranormal viewpoints or theories falsifiable? Well, we can see that a few of them are absolutely falsifiable, and therefore, so long as they are being attempted in good faith, can be considered scientific pursuits. Bigfoot is a scenario where this is the case although is one where bad science is all too often portrayed on television. While the search for a potential hominid mammal in the deep forests of the North American wilderness 
is not all that different from the search for other unknown species. When the hunt for Bigfoot switches to the dogmatic, and therefore not falsifiable, is where it fails the test that Popper describes. To begin with, in the case of Bigfoot, we are searching for something specific. So we are searching for confirmation that Bigfoot exists, as opposed to trying to disprove the idea that Bigfoot does. This may not seem like a big difference at first, but if we dig a little deeper, the distinction becomes clear. For Popper, when you are doing science, you must have a hypothesis and a test of that hypothesis. Usually, however, the hypothesis is something small and falsifiable, and it is only in the conglomeration of these smaller hypotheses that you can begin to make a larger claim. Even more important, usually the hypothesis is working off of some other scientist's previous investigations of nature. So let's take a very simple example, and one that I'm sure a few of you listeners may have actually done in your elementary school days for a science fair. And if you never did this experiment, consider it a free science fair theory for your kids. We are going to hypothesize that a plant placed in direct sunlight will grow better than a plant placed in darkness. Okay, so that's our hypothesis, and now we need some method of testing that hypothesis. First off, we're going to need to put one plant into direct sunlight, where another one sits inside of a closet or something, so that it doesn't receive any sunlight. Let's say we measure the health of the plant by the color of the leaves, with greener being better, and we'll also measure how tall our plant can grow over the testing period. Clearly, we also need to determine how long the test goes, so let's say 10 days. We also need to choose a type of plant to test, so we're going to go with yellow roses. And we need to ensure that certain things are kept the same between tests, so that other factors aren't negatively affecting the plants or changing things between them. So, we'll give each plant the same amount of water, from the same source, and we'll keep them at the temperature of our home. What we've done here is come up with a list of variables, or things that will change in our experiment, and controls, or things that we will keep the same. The variables are the things we are actually testing for. So in this case, the only variable in our experiment is how much sun each plant receives, which we will change by putting one of them in direct sunlight and the other one in a closet. Our controls are things like the time, the amount of water, the type of plant, and room temperature. All things that can affect the experiment, but which we are keeping the same to ensure we are only testing our variable. We also came up with a clear set of measurable quantities, and a method of determining how those quantities can be used to test what our variable is doing. From previous experiments that others have done, we know that when plants are dying they turn less green, and furthermore a healthy plant will grow taller than an unhealthy one. Once we've done the experiment, we should now be able to obtain results that we can use to either prove or disprove our initial hypothesis. Either result is good science, and useful information. Notice that we haven't even done the experiment, but we've already planned it out pretty much entirely. We know what we expect, we know what we will do, and we have some idea of what the results will tell us, whether they are positive or negative. This works for both small experiments done as a third grader and as a PhD student studying something more complicated. The only difference really is the number of variables and the difficulty in measuring some piece of information. But the concepts are totally the same. I think one of the best things I heard as a graduate student came during a talk given by Robert Langer, if I remember who said it correctly. 
where he said that he encourages his students to start writing their papers at the beginning of the experimental process. I've done this throughout my career now, and although my career has been admittedly short so far, it really makes a huge difference. Ultimately, in good science, you can write the beginning of a paper, including the introduction and reason for the hypothesis to be tested, how you will actually test it, and what question each test will allow you to answer at the beginning of the experimental process. Even for experiments that don't turn into papers, which as a scientist I can tell you are most of them, the reasoning and method behind each one should be there at the beginning. The problem with a lot of paranormal claims are that the hypothesis is never really laid out at the beginning. And if it is there, there's never really a way to actually test or falsify this hypothesis. And there's almost always dogmatism or a desire to believe that clouds the people's analysis of the results. Taking the example of Bigfoot, instead of determining if, for instance, a given footprint could feasibly have come from a real creature, and if so, what sort of genus or species it likely belongs to or is most related to, we test things that are impossible to determine a real answer to. On those Bigfoot shows, their ultimate question is always, is Bigfoot living in this area? The answer to which is almost by definition always going to be a murky and unsatisfying maybe. There is no way to actually test this question, at least in a way that can remove doubt or dogmatism from those that are true believers. In a perfect world, even if we had cameras running 24 hours a day over every part of a given forested area, there would still be room for the possibility that Bigfoot could maybe exist. Perhaps it lives underground, or in the trees themselves, or maybe it's so well camouflaged that we simply missed it in our cameras. And there still leaves room for this creature to exist in another forest in an even more remote location. Even despite the fact that there is no feasible way to test the hypothesis, does Bigfoot exist? Dogmatists and true believers will always find a way to allow for their belief to continue. If we go back to the example of our plant experiment, this would be like a group of people who absolutely believed that plants did not require sunlight, arguing that with each successive experiment, we didn't test the right sort of plant. Although yellow roses might die in darkness, maybe tulips won't, or certain trees, and on and on. This dogmatism is really at the heart of the problem of more metaphysical paranormal beliefs, like the existence of ghosts. The beliefs themselves are never broken down into easily tested hypotheses, and therefore the questions asked can never hope to answer a given question. Ghost hunting expeditions, for instance, are always done in extremely different circumstances with no standards or controls on their tested method. For instance, are the EMF readers calibrated regularly and before each experiment? Do they enclose the area of testing in such a way as to completely remove outside electromagnetic fields? Are the electronic voice phenomena discernible, even if you're not looking for a certain response? Because of this lack of control, it's impossible to find evidence that is scientifically sound. But as I discussed in the first episode, perhaps these metaphysical beliefs shouldn't be tested scientifically at all. We assume with this discussion of science that metaphysical things can be given the scientific treatment that Popper requires, but perhaps they don't follow the same sort of causal chain that is being tested with the scientific method. Notice as well that scientific dogmatism is also a very real possibility. Really, I try to stay Socratic with this sort of thing. To quote Socrates or at least to quote our account of Socrates in Plato's Apology, quote, 
I am wiser than this man, for neither of us appears to know anything great and good, but he fancies he knows something, although he knows nothing, whereas I, as I do not know anything, so I do not fancy I do. In this trifling particular, then, I appear to be wiser than he, because I do not fancy I know what I do not know. Just like Socrates, who was the wisest man in Athens because he was aware that he actually knew nothing. I try to make it, and I try to look at these things in such a way to come from the assumption first that I know nothing, and then see what makes sense. We can't know anything really other than what we've experienced personally. And some of my philosopher friends are going to argue with me on that point as well, I am sure. But science gives us a framework by which to test the theories of others. And ideally, so long as we stick to this method of testing and verifying claims, it is hoped that we can gain knowledge. But there are times where the scientific approach fails. And I'm not just talking about how do we explain paranormal things. Things like emotions, sensations, and almost all of the more wonderful aspects of human life cannot be reduced so far to scientific claims. But once again, the proof is in the pudding. Although we may not know exactly what sadness is, when that Sarah McLaughlin commercial starts up, don't we all feel a little bit of that emotion? And so can't we at least attempt to explain that feeling to others, or cause them to have it themselves, so they know somewhat how we are experiencing life at that moment? Let's just take it for granted at the moment that science can't explain everything at this point in time. Fine, but what about the paranormal claims that are trying to make a physical or scientific argument? Well, I think for the most part, those that are doing that kind of work are really asking the wrong questions, and because of that, can't really get down to some useful info. And that is sort of the hope of this podcast, to not only be entertaining and hopefully somewhat educational, but also to go into the science and attempts at science put out by the paranormal community. But as it stands now, do I think that the search for Bigfoot or ghosts are really science, at least in the way Popper describes? In general, no. Besides the dogmatism that causes some to always find evidence for a thing in a given area, and I am looking directly at any of you that call every forested area you go hunting in squatchy, The questions are just too big to be really scientific. Bigfoot hunters should ask things like, could this forest provide enough food for a large mammal? Or, do other large mammals survive without vegetation in a mountainous area? Or, do these foot markings relate to an actual hominid creature's anatomy as we currently understand it? All of those are scientific questions that can get us closer to answering, does Bigfoot exist? And they are things that don't require a carcass or perfect video footage or anything. In the same way, ghost hunting can be significantly improved if we just do a little bit of controlling for environment, and further if we try to establish a causal chain to the problems we face. Obviously, some of the questions related to ghost hunts are far too metaphysical to really have any hope of being answered. But things like, does infrasound cause people to sense a false spirit presence in a room, followed by... Is there infrasound in a majority of haunted homes? Could remove a lot of ambiguity in the hunt for spirits, and is something that doesn't require a whole lot of scientific background to go into. Another thing that could help would be to test those machines that are used in the hunt for ghosts against a wider range of conditions. Besides taking them just into haunted homes and seeing if we can get a voice recorded, 
Why not test the same thing under various forms of electromagnetism in a controlled environment? How about put one in an area where there has never been ghost activity, and see if it's possible to get some sort of voice phenomena on record? Even if we don't have access to the sort of equipment to do those tests, then if you're going to do a ghost hunt in a supposed haunted location, why not contain yourself to a single room? Control for variables like drafts by sealing windows, outside noises by putting foam padding on the walls, electromagnetic waves by running a control test before you begin asking any questions or attempting to lure a ghost into a room, and furthermore, try to limit the number of humans in the room to further remove unnecessary variation. Not only would that hopefully yield better, more scientifically sound results, I think it would take away a lot of the wackiness that ghosts or Bigfoot hunts have unfortunately garnered over the years and maybe allow for some serious scientific questioning to start occurring. I mean, the fact that the ghost hunting team on Kroll Show can be mistaken for a real ghost hunting team if you just mute the TV is pretty unfortunate in my opinion. Of course, there will always be those that refuse out of hand the possibility of the paranormal. But still, even answering these small questions scientifically can be useful to our understanding of the natural world. Historically, there has been scientific attempts by major research universities to, for instance, try to measure and quantify extrasensory perception or psychokinetics. And furthermore, research still goes on in some psychology departments to search for things that are not explicable if the mind is simply a manifestation of the body. One unfortunate but famous example of the science of the paranormal is the doctor in Haverhill, Massachusetts, who attempted to measure the weight of the soul as it was leaving the body. Dr. Duncan McDougall claimed that his patients lost approximately 21 grams upon death. However, his results have never been replicated, and so are now considered to be absolute hogwash. Furthermore, Dr. McDougall's own notes show that he only found 21 grams weight loss in one patient. Still, this is an example of an interesting sort of scientific test of the presence of the soul. I think it's also important, however, to think about the consequences of taking the mind-body problem, the question of souls or an afterlife, and the related topics of ghosts or psychics or whatever, as completely solved by science. It's one thing to think that there may not be a present force in our universe that acts as some sort of god, and in fact, that is the sort of thinking that I am most drawn to. However, to claim that the mind is simply a manifestation of the interlocking parts of the body, ultimately describable by the atomic and subatomic interactions of particles, is to almost necessarily require that the universe is deterministic. Now, of course, it's possible to allow for some scientific reductions without needing everything to be described by determinable particle interactions. Perhaps there are properties of conglomerates of things that are not the properties of the things themselves. For instance, consciousness may be an emergent property of the cells of the brain. But as I described in the first episode, that seems to allow for things that are potentially paranormal or not explainable by the sciences, such as emergent properties. It should be clear, however, that free will would be just such an emergent property, at least true free will, where every single thing we think, feel, experience, and do is not predetermined, calculable, or related to in any way the interactions of our subatomic particles. This is because subatomic particles and their interactions are by definition deterministic, because we can know from their initial states what they will do at a given time. Now, some will argue that quantum mechanics 
and the requirements that certain physical quantities cannot be known simultaneously allows for a certain level of probability and therefore something that seems like non-determinism. However, that is an extremely weak argument to my mind, and one that seems to border on breaking a few of Popper's rules. Let's say we give that objects at the subatomic scale have the ability to not necessarily exist at a single point in space at a given time, but instead in a range of most probable locations at a given time. For instance, in the case of our tennis ball hitting the wall, although we expect the tennis ball to exist at the center point where it strikes the wall, we know from our experiment that it can also, almost equally likely, exist at any point in that wave pattern. This still makes no difference when we pull away to the scale of the atoms or molecules that we are composed of. Although subatomic particles may exist that way and operate that way, atoms don't, neither do molecules or cells. And ultimately, that probable location is determinable enough for us to engineer things like lasers that cost less than $20 on Amazon. So does it really make sense that this is the location of our soul or free will? Notice, too, that this is a shrinking of the magical worldview as described in episode 1, with the magical hypothesis of free will due to the soul now being relegated to probable will due to quantum mechanics, giving us the same magical thinking but without the magical cause. Really, there is a lot more at stake with the search for paranormal entities, such as a soul, than most people realize, I think. And too many of us are ready and willing to ignore the possibility of paranormal things without taking it to its, at least to my emergent property, of the pink, spongy conglomerate of cells I hold in my skull, logical conclusion of a deterministic universe. So are paranormal things scientific? Well, probably not all of them. But if we use science to try and understand those that are falsifiable, I think it can bring us much closer to some answers to these questions and make those asking them seem more capable of actually coming to any useful conclusions. That's it for this week's episode. I am hoping to start moving these shows towards more dissection and analysis of particular cases or phenomena themselves, as opposed to these kind of freewheeling philosophical diatribes. I'm also in the process of coming up with some ways that I can actually test some of these paranormal claims, maybe on a YouTube channel or something. With upcoming episodes on pet psychics, as well as ghost hunting methods in the works. Thank you for listening once again, and I will see you next time. Do you enjoy science, spooky stories, and all things paranormal? We do too. While we would love for most paranormal stories to be true, we are here to tell you that they probably aren't. But that doesn't make them any less fun to speculate about. We are the Spooky Science Sisters podcast. In this podcast, we bring you bi-weekly discussions on possible scientific explanations behind the supernatural. Backed up by research articles and other credible sources, we do deep dives into things like archaeology and physics and share in-depth discussions with topic experts. Visit us at SpookyScienceSisters.com to listen to a couple of skeptics debunk some of your favorite alien encounters, cryptid sightings, and ghost stories with science, sass, and a significant amount of laughter. Thank you and stay spooky.